Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Yeah, Mr. Mom this week. Um, a lot of people, you know, I get a lot of, I don't know about you, but nobody ever sees my wife, Okay. Yeah, same here. Like, are you even married? Like, what's the deal here? So here's a little skinny on my wife. My wife right now is the chair of the Horror Writers Association of America. Okay, number one. Number two, she just spent two nights in the Stanley Hotel outside of Denver, Colorado. And it was her, like, freaking out that she was hoping to see a ghost. Okay. Number three. She is a horror writer. That is psychological thriller horror writers. That is my wife. And she's in Denver right now for StokerCon. Go to <laughs> StokerCon? I've never heard of it. StokerCon, Horror Writers Association to get together of all these people who write horror. Wow. <laughs> so that's your wife. Like, do you ever go with her? Uh, no. And no. same thing reciprocally for me. Does she ever come and attend hunting conventions or shows or seminars? No. <laughs> well, it separates church and state. I mean, that's probably, it can be a good thing. 
quite You're often. looking high and tight, man. You got a, you got your ears lowered. I get ready to go to uh, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers rendezvous tomorrow, so I got to look tight for that. I can't. Oh, nice. I can't be running around looking like a hobo like I normally do. So I got my do hair. Do you done. typically look like a hobo through turkey season? Yeah, it's bad. That's bad. I might like turkey season is a desperate time for me, almost always, because I'm trying to fit all my life things that don't calm down for two and a half mm-hmm. months of of desperately always wanting to be hunting turkeys. So it's just it's become a very conflicted time of the year for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we don't have Cody with us, and um, it's a shame. It's a real shame because Cody's developing a little cult following. Really? Yeah he he tends to drink. His drink of choice when he gets on the roundup is agave, not tequila, agave from Peach Street Distillery. We're trying to still get a sponsorship from Peach Street Distillery in Palisade, Colorado. We mention them every week on the roundup. And um, when Cody gets about two or three agaves in, and it's a sipping tequila, so he's drinking it like bourbon, Cody turns into this individual that people are starting to love. Does he have like an alter ego? Not an alter ego, but rather he tends to, his soapbox gets larger and longer every time he gets deeper into the agave. <laughs> I know what that's like. I've been there. I had a very similar thing with White Claw and a guy named Phil. Very similar. Mm. Uh, so I know what you mean. I've been, I've been there. Never did get sponsored by White Claw, unfortunately. Yeah. Agave is a little stronger than White Claw, I would assume. It's true, but like the white claws, in the, especially in the summertime, go down. Sneak up on you. Oh, they sneak up on you. You know, a couple of mangoes, and then the next thing you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard once that uh, Bozeman was like the, like drank more white claw than, than the entire U.S. combined or something silly, silly when statistic. I, I heard that when I moved here, and then they had like a big white claw billboard right by my house. I was like, that maybe that's true. Because... <laughs> I have to see it every day, like a, a nice-looking young lady splashing around in a pool drinking a mango. There we go. Maybe that's one of the reasons they got me so hard. Uh, that's right. Is there know. any other alternative flavor than a mango? Oh, yeah. I mean, they have... No, 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 no. Let's be real. Oh, Do no. no. Mango is the only real flavor. Like watermelon, okay, okay. watermelon-ish. Like, it's, it's acceptable. But uh, don't come at me with, like, natural lime. This is, a, this is an awful, awful flavor. Like, I, you're out of my inner circle if you're drinking natural lime. Well, Cody's not with us tonight because yesterday it was his birthday. And uh, his wife decided to take him out tonight. Yeah. And he was like, oh, man, I can't tell her no. Smart. So I saw a picture of him in a jacket and a pocket square earlier. <laughs> um, so he I is... He, Cody. I've never met him, but uh, yeah, I like Cody, him. yeah, he's he's... He makes it, and I'll I'll give that to him. And he, when he listens to this, he'll he'll take you know his his feathers will puff up a little bit. Um, you know, when Cody is on the podcast, it, it, it's a it's a better podcast. It's a better podcast. He brings a different dynamic to it. You know, he doesn't like all these big falluted words that typical scientists use. He wants to dumb it down, and you know, gives me gives me shit all the time, and. Um, it's good. It's good. Everybody for needs a Cody. You know, you got to have somebody that's willing to shoot you straight on some of the things. You and I, you know, we like to think big and broad and dramatically sometimes. You see somebody bring right. it back a little bit, simplify this stuff. Mm-hmm. Back to real terms. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Ben O'Brien, welcome to the Roundup. This Thank is your you. first time on Blood Origins. We'll have to... Um, yeah. We're probably going to... It's sort of going to be a crossover today, the Roundup, because I saw the, the articles that Cody put on the Roundup, and there's one that um, is obviously happening yeah. right now it's that may, may dominate uh, the conversation for 30 minutes or so. Yeah, that's but, a, hot, um, a hot topic, man. Ben O'Brien, thank you. Welcome to the Blood Origins Roundup. Thanks for having me, man. I'm I'm uh, I'm game for this at all times. And you, as you were saying, my kids are. This is like the witching hour for my kids. And so, thanks for letting me have a little break <laughs> from from the witching hour. Well, I'm in. I'm Mr. Mom, so my witching hour right now. And my my kids are getting to a point where they can self sustain themselves. Ten and eight. Oh, that's and cool. the scavengers. I told them, okay, you can have switch time from seven o'clock to. 7.35, and then from 7.35 to 7.45 is brushing your teeth and getting ready for bed. And so I said, I want to see you in the bed when I get off this podcast. <laughs> yes, sir. No problems. That's a modern dad issue. Like I'm going yeah, to The podcast. littlest one said, how, is I supposed to, how am I supposed to know like what time it is? <laughs> I said, there's lots of clocks in the house, Eli. Lots. I'm putting the responsibility on you. Yeah. I have in my studio slash office here at home, I have glass doors in my my five-year-old just poked his head in the door and he went like this. <laughs> Since this is an, an audio medium, you were oh, pointing he, to he your did. eyes. I'm watching yeah. you eagle eyes. He gave me the, like, I'm watching you snitches get stitches kind of like, <laughs> he gave me the, I'm coming, I'm coming at you, brother. You've got a younger, younger one than five, five and two. Yeah. Five and two, five and two, both yeah. boys or both boy boys. and girl. Yeah. James and Asher, two boys. Sweet. Savages. Uh, Savages, man. We were out. We went out last night and uh, I was going to take my boy turkey hunting and I always feel bad for not taking our our little two-year-old. It's kind of like he's old enough to kind of be like, what's what's going on, man? Where are you guys going? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we went out on a mushroom hunt last night uh, and a turkey hunt at the same time. Basically, we took a box call and I let them just like make noises with it. Uh, Mm -hmm. We found no mushrooms. Everybody just fell down in the rocks. Nice. (laughs) And and they made as many... uh, turkey noises with the box holes they could but you know in this in the interest of like being you know moving at their speed it was amazing they're you know they love the outdoors and just did to you give them. your wife the night off or did she join you she jo- she joined okay because uh, it's like a one a man-on-man defense out there <laughs> <laughs> so she joined uh which was great and then uh she was able to she she loves mushroom hunting too and we forage a ton and berries and whatnot when that's when that's happening um so she loves it but again the kids are just like flipping rocks and looking at ants that's their speed 100 percent morale's not really there um how's the transition going how's uh duck is it duck campo or... yeah camp duck campo would duck be camp. Name sorry for... duck camp sorry that's not uh, you know how how brand in aware i am so <laughs> el camp there was a guy in lonesome dove i think his name was el campo he was the cook for the lonesome dove uh deal but yeah, it's going great, man. I'm, I'm, uh, to me, uh, everything's new and positive and re- like mm-hmm. I'm able to. Um, a big part of my duck camp life is conservation, um, and so they were like, "Man, we'll give you the keys to conservation and, and help us create an ethos and you know, kind of act on that ethos." And um, that's so that's been great. We've been really taking what what was done there prior to my entry into the business and and pushing forward a you know, a message of, Hey, we're going to walk the walk here and we're going to make sure 
there's more ducks in the prairie pothole and make sure there's more hunters and, and mentors and things like that in Texas where the brand is based. So mm-hmm. I, they were speaking my language with that. And, and I've, you know, I've been there a couple months now and three, three, four months now, and I've already been able to create some partnerships and, and do some great things for, for the brand and, and just for the mission focus. Um, so yeah, man, that's a, it's a insane thing to have for a job. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. No, it's um, it's exciting to see you get back on your feet. And we've had a couple of people that um, so in this roundup we have a text line that people can text us on six two zero eight six zero four eight zero four. I don't know if we got any text this week because Cody didn't fill in the kind the, the the document that we look at. Um, but we've had a couple of guys text us in the past out of Nebraska that have said we're non-hunters and mm-hmm. we want to learn how to hunt. Like, where do we start? Like, where do we go? And you know where we sent them? To tell. The Hunt in Common. Yeah, baby. I like hunt that in common. idea. I just yeah. got off a meeting with our officer group from the Hunt in Common before I jumped on yeah. here. So, yeah, uh, so that was uh, one way for us to engage with the stuff that you've built. And that was uh, an, another guy actually texted us and told us, you know, they should get in contact with these guys. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. That's great, man. So, well, I really appreciate that. We're we're launching the Hunt in Common. You'd be the first person to ever hear this, so maybe if I, I put some pressure on me, but officially launching the Hunt in Common. We've been doing it for a year, roughly. Um, officially launching the brand and the website and the social media stuff on July 12th. Um, nice. So, yeah, breaking news, I cool. guess, to, to those well, folks that, that are out, interested. Everyone. Yeah, check yeah. that out, everyone. Hunt in Common is just a community of individuals in every state that people can connect with and go hunt with and mentor and, and do all sorts of good things for hunting, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. No, we're, we're right now pushing, pushing really hard to, you know, kind of codify those chapters we had. We really started as a bunch of people that were interested in this. And I, you know, I basically said to listeners of my prior podcast, put your hand up if you want to volunteer. And we had lots of hands go up. Um, and so in the, in the last six, eight months, we were able to get our 501c3 status and we were able to elect a, some officers, all volunteer from across the country, just different backgrounds and perspectives, and then able to get some chapter leaders in place and start to mentor folks. So we have a thousand members, if you will, in uh, California and about 18 or 18 to 20 mentor pairs out there right now. And, uh, Wisconsin's, you know, 324 members. And I think we have, about 14 mentorship pairs and Texas is, I think, eight mentorship pairs. So it's, you know, it's small nice. communities in different states. And I think we cover almost every state at this point. Um, so we're, you know, we're growing in, a, in a, an intentional and organic way. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. And what we're, I guess the thesis of the whole thing is localized long-term mentorship. You know, go on, a, we love field to table weekends or field to fork weekends or, you know, many NGOs will host you on a weekend and show you how to hunt and give you a crash course. But we want to be the next stop, like where you come to when you need somebody that lives in your town or your state that can be with you for a year, six months or more um, and kind of shepherd you in everything that you need to know. So that's our kind of our value propositions, long term local mentorship. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, uh, you talked a little bit about conservation. I want everyone to know, since this is uh, still very much in effect, we have a black bear uh, conservation project right now underway, the Arkansas Black Bear Project, in which we are funding the science and the data collection effort of a new population in the state of Arkansas that is to be hunted. Very, very minimal. 
hunting pressure. Uh, but they want to get the best science available on that, on the fecundity of the female bears. And it's an amazing opportunity. We've raised over $41,000 already of 70. Uh, we have two weeks to go. We've got $10,000 still left in match. So um, every dollar that is funded gets matched dollar for dollar. And uh, you can win some amazing things. Like today, a thermal hog hunt got given for $100 donations. Uh, there's a coon hunt. There's another hog hunt in Texas. There's all sorts of things you can win. And obviously, the biggest prizes are the two expeditions. One, to actually collar these bears with Arkansas Game Fish Biologists. You can't do that. You can't buy that. And the other one, which is probably going to be a lot less sweaty, because that will happen in the summer in Arkansas, is a wintering denning female that you can go in and you can pull her out they'll dart her tranquilize her and they find her obviously because she has a collar pull her out of the den and then the four five six bear cubs that are with the female you get to hold them you get to measure them you get to weigh them amazing amazing expedition that's amazing citizen science man hell it's what hunters should be doing hunters should be saying Hey, let's stick our hands up. Let's fund the science uh, for for wildlife, essentially, for understanding wildlife. And I guess, you know, that's a great segue into two topics today that we'll talk about is, is this idea of science, right? This idea that science should drive population management. And as hunters, we should be okay with it. We should be okay with the results of it. So before we get into the controversial topic, Oh, the article that will railroad us. <laughs> Let's get one in there at least, which is this: um, the Wyoming Game and Fish cuts eleven thousand mule deer and pronghorn hunting licenses. This was published on May the fifth, twenty twenty two, in the CowboyStateDaily.com. Yes, and uh, and the, the the reasons that they cited the reduction in tags was the lack of soil moisture, drought causing future a limit on future shrub growth which is a big component of the big game wintering diet. So are hunters going to be upset or they're going to be okay with this, Ben O'Brien? Well, I think this goes to their other very controversial topic. It's kind of, there's some, there's some parallels here. Um, we, you know, we would like to think uh, that kind of the value system in our community would say that, yeah, whatever the resource needs is what we'll do. I think that is certainly evident in, in, the taxes we pay and the, and the duck stamp and our willingness to pay more and our willingness to do things like what you're doing in Arkansas. Um, I think from a dollar standpoint, hunters have shown uh, that we're willing to pay for the privilege. Um, when it comes to actually opportunities and less tags, it's a bit of a different story. Um, but I think most, most hunters, at least ones that I know and that I'm around, are fully on board with whatever the science dis discharges, whatever the wildlife biologists in the state game agencies would discharge is, is sound policy. Certainly we should challenge that and examine that, but whatever they're going to put, put forward, we tend to want to believe that. And that's, you know, based on our model of conservation. You know, the first comment that's going to be is I see pronghorn everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to ask how fish populations are doing, you go ask the local, you know, the local commercial fisherman, and then he's going to tell you, right, good or bad. Um, that's there's some truth in that, but I mean, I always just go back to 
our model of conservation, I use it as a guide. It's, it's not always a firm guide, but I kind of just use it as a guide when approaching something like this. If I'm going to approach it, am I approaching it as skeptical or am I approaching it with, with, you know, kind of not unabashed support, but in general support of state game agencies and, and how they level tags and tag opportunities and allocations and, and all those things. So I, I would kind of, I'd have to do a bunch more research to really and probably call some folks like Jess Johnson and other folks in Wyoming that I know will have their, mm-hmm. their um, finger on the pulse of this. But I mean, I, I, t- I would go into this with rose colored glasses. I would say I would go mm-hmm. into it. Like I, this is the kind of discharge of wildlife policy that seems in keeping with what we're, what we should be supporting and what we're used to. Now mm-hmm. I'm always skeptical of any uh, large body making any decision, but you know, that would be kind of secondary, I think, in this case. If the science and data show that fewer tags now will hopefully mean a healthier pronghorn and mule deer herds in Wyoming in the long run, then it's our responsibility as hunters to accept that and to ideally support that decision by addressing the root cause of population declines with other conservation efforts like habitat enhancement and protection is a statement that was made, I think, by the Wyoming backcountry hunters and anglers in this article. Mm-hmm. Um I couldn't agree more, obviously, to the statement. Um, I think that people get a false sense of security, have a false sense of maybe a false sense of value when it comes to the number of tags available to hunt. And once you are used to a certain tag limit and it and it gets taken away from you, I think that there's obviously a little bit of consternation there. And people are like, I don't like that. I don't like that. But if they took a step back and thought maybe about their kids and their grandkids one day, it's like lions in Africa. If lions are declining, you shouldn't hunt them anymore. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the, I, I always get the verbiage wrong, but the, like the seventh tenant in our model of conservation is scientific management is the proper means for wildlife conservation. And so, um, you step up into the plate on this one and go, what's the science? That's the question. Like, that's really the only question to ask. And then once the science is presented, if it's objectively true, or at least um, you're able to, the data there is analytically able to provide, you know, this as a threshold for changes in policy, then we're there. We're doing the thing that we said we're going to set out to do. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. never perfect, but this is within, uh, you know, within the system of wildlife that we, we live in. And again, I was just talking with Shane Mahoney on the podcast the other day. And it's, you know, we're just kind of agreeing that conservation is not, we're not managing wildlife. We're managing human interaction with wildlife. I mean, that is what, that's what we're talking about here. You know, we're managing our interaction with it. Um, and I, I imagine the only problem with this would be that, as you said, people get used to a certain hunting experience. They get used to a certain tag allocation and opportunity and when populations go down or when hunter numbers go up, that always challenges their baseline of what mm-hmm. their expectations are. And then you get into kind of the idea of hunters, hunter uh, satisfaction, which is, which is a, a thing within wildlife uh, management, that hunter surveys and hunter satisfaction begets participation in the sense of R3. So, I mean, there's, it's a, that's a, a gumbo of things to kind of sort through. Why is there a distrust for the states themselves in terms of the science that they're creating? Because they, you would expect, 
and I, I don't say it in jest, but I would I would support and I do support state wildlife agencies' decisions because they're the people collecting the most data. There isn't anybody else on the landscape collecting more data. Yes, there may be people, Joe Blow down the street, that anecdotally believes X or anecdotally believes Y, but he has no data. The state has the data. And there, I know the biologists yeah. that are collecting that data because I trained those biologists when I was a professor. And these guys are doing it because they love the resource. Yeah. So why the distrust? I think some of the distrust is natural, especially in a state like Wyoming. Um, why? And I think. I mean, I think some of this distrust. Have they is, made bad bad judgment calls in the past? Have they not been biologically relevant decisions? I can't. I don't know every decision that's made, but I imagine they made a few missteps. I imagine even those biologists would say, "Hey, sometimes we we don't always get it right." So I think there's healthy distrust. Um, there's healthy distrust. Do you think it's the biologists? Because this happens a lot, right? The biologists say X and the commission says Y. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of the commissions in these states are just different than the biologists. And they are a little bit more susceptible to politics, to playing politics, um, to kind of to having a narrative when they walk in the door in terms of wildlife policy. If you're a scientist and you're a biologist, you should come in with no narrative. Like you're no predisposed narrative of how we manage. You take a look at the data. You take a look at the, you know, the predisposition of our structure and how we manage wildlife, and you go from there. Um, I think the commissions in themselves. We've seen it in Oregon. We've seen it here in Montana, where I live. The commissions are way more susceptible to political ideologies and decision making, mm-hmm. and because look how they get elected. You know, oftentimes mm-hmm. the governor is appointing yeah. these people, so they yeah. they're 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 only there to serve at the pleasure of the governor in some cases. Um, so that there is a mix there, um, you know, and I, I think it's our job as citizens, certainly citizen scientists are just hunters, people that, that want to be involved in something like this, this big structure of, of hunting and wildlife management to be skeptical in a healthy way, but not let it, not let it get into conspiracies or just ideological hate and, and narrative building and things like that. Like that's, that's going to happen. But I think in general, skepticism in this case is, is fine. Talking about ideological hate and skepticism and following the data. The second article that we will discuss and probably not get to any other articles after this one. And I've got lots of questions because I haven't said anything about it. I've been watching from afar. We haven't been involved. We haven't put any podcasts out about it. Um, Outdoor Life posted a, uh, an article called The Case for Banning, Reaping, and Fanning Turkeys. And I know that you've had several podcasts with people yeah. for and against this yeah. art, uh, this position. So let me ask some very basic questions because I'm, I'm a very novice turkey hunter. Sure. I'm not a very good one. Um, I have never reaped or fanned or actually... I've never fanned a turkey. So let me ask this basic question. What is the difference between reaping and fanning? Right. There isn't much of a difference there. Um, you know, what they'll say is like, it's the act of moving behind a turkey fan or a decoy. And in this case, fanning just means like you took the, the tail feathers off of a turkey and are using it as, you know, to get behind, to draw a turkey in. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, the act of moving behind a turkey fan, this is from the article, the act of moving behind a turkey fan or a decoy into shooting range of a tom. So essentially reaping 
is not a stationary decoy setup. It is, you see a turkey in a field, you see a turkey on the edge of a woodlot, you see a turkey, you know, on a butte somewhere in, in Nebraska. And rather than sitting tight and calling him in, you get behind a fan and crawl towards him to get in range. Mm-hmm. So essentially that's mm-hmm. what reaping is. Mm-hmm. There isn't any, you know, certainly there's no legal definition of reaping that's prevalent across states. Given the, the thrust here to ban it, you would have to. Um, but uh, I know we'll talk about this. This it just creates a slippery slope because how do you really define what this is? Um, and if I'm holding a fan but sitting against a tree, I'm not reaping. I'm just sitting against a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this gets into what I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about and what this creates in terms of kind of chaos within how we manage these things. But that's essentially what we're talking about here. And, and the feller's name is uh, Cameron Weddington. I'd spent an hour and a half a couple of days ago with him podcasting on this topic. Excellent. Um, podcasting and, on your podcast or yeah, someone else? Yeah, on Woodside. Yep, we're going to have nice. I'll just I'll run you through what we're gonna do, and I think that'll color what we can we can cover. Yeah, for here. sure, for sure. So we had Cameron on. I feel like the, really this would be kind of disinteresting to me if it wasn't for the banning aspect. There's always gonna be arguments inside and outside of legislative circles around what's ethical, what's you know what are methods of take that are um, should be banned or what's hurting. Uh, wildlife populations and there's always going to be kind of a traditionalist purist side and a modernist side mm-hmm. new age side there's always that is ubiquitous throughout hunting so I, that's not as interesting to me as this idea that we're going to ban this thing um, and so cameron weddington goes by the godfather Godfather 49 godfather that's right old god which i like that's pretty funny um so he came on the podcast and, and I essentially said, look, man, we're going to start with you because, you know, really a, a, among other folks, he's kind of the one that's really pushing this idea of a ban, which is where I come in. I'm in like, Tennessee. Yeah, in Tennessee, because that's where yeah. he's from. Yep. Yeah, that's where he's from. So he's a financial planner in Tennessee, not a professional really in our space, but an avid turkey hunter, a good turkey hunter, and he loves it and does it all the time. Um, you know, and it's very well spoken and very objectively uh, – stated in, in his opposition to reaping um and a good dude i think a nice guy um and he was very well spoken about his points so we had him on and they said like look this is coming from you so we're going to start with you you tell us what the opposition is here um or tell me what the opposition is here and, and let's go from there um and this was a, a prior to this article coming out which he lays it out you know pretty uh pretty in a pretty detailed manner but you know essentially he wants to ban reaping uh he's starting in tennessee obviously because that's where he lives as we said but he wants to ban make it illegal everywhere uh he feels the tactic is unethical he feels like it's cheating he feels like it has and we'll get into it is unethical because it makes it easier for you to kill a turkey that's his premise right that's his premise his premise is that it he grew up in a purist you know kind of traditionalist turkey hunting mindset um, so his, his kind of initial disagreement with it, and again, you can read the article, it's all there, um, so I don't want to put words in Cameron's mouth too much, but his initial issue is with that it felt like a cheat code. He did it a few times early in, earlier in his turkey hunting career. It worked so well, he put it aside. And, and in the years since he did that, and you know the decades since he started uh, using a fan to reap turkeys, there's been a prevalence of one, the tactic, but two, uh, sensational social media clips, internet right. clips of people 
right. reaping turkeys in very either unsafe manners or sensational manners that that most hunters probably would seem like mm, that's a little bit too far. Um, and so that kind of turned the heat up on this opposition to this uh, method to take. Um, and so it starts with kind of the the ethical or purist notion that this is cheating, that this is unfair. It's it works too well. Turkeys uh, biologically are triggered to come into these fans. And so then you move a little bit. You move then a is little there bit. data? Is there data? Does Cameron know of any data that shows that this technique makes you more of an efficient hunter? Anecdotally, he obviously is a very good turkey hunter. He tried it twice. He killed twice. Yeah. But do we have any data that says, yes, this is true? Yeah, so that's where so a lot of the data that that uh, and this worked well for me. It was it was not really intentional, but it worked well. Um, we had a lot of his data comes from uh, a gentleman named Dr. Mike Chamberlain. He's a mm-hmm. turkey biologist, turkey the wild turkey, turkey dog. So a lot of his uh, thesis here comes from uh, the wild turkey doc, and and Mike has has spoken a long a lot of time about an issue within turkey hunting that's fairly specific. And that is the susceptible nature of mature toms, breeding toms within turkey flocks. And the fact that when we kill a breeding tom, it throws the pecking order into chaos. It affects turkey populations. And we, our ability to kill a breeding tom with a tactic like, this is where Cameron jumps in, our ability to, to kill a breeding tom with a tactic like fanning is increased because the situation generally goes that a breeding tom has kicked out all of the juvenile male turkeys yeah subordinates yeah subordinates and now he is what we call henned up he's got his his flock a brood of hens and so he is is now a mature gobbler with a bunch of hens he is hard to kill because he's not going to come to you You i mean you're trying to act like a hen turkey he's not coming Mm -hmm. to you Mm-hmm. Even the best turkey callers, and I think Cameron's right about this, even the best turkey callers would be hard-pressed to call that turkey into rear. What he's arguing is that by using a fan, it makes that, that dominant breeding gobbler more susceptible, thus easier to kill, thus affecting the breeding population each spring. Uh, so that's what he's running out there. Um, so he believes, and let me, you may have asked Mike the same question, he believes that the tactic is actually causing turkey population declines he, as yeah. a result of the taking of this this mature tom versus yeah. bigger in my brain things like closed canopy how to habitat management fire all those kinds yeah. of things so he believes this tactic actually is more dominant of a influence on turkey populations than the habitat management activities. Yeah, he, he believes, you know, he, he set up kind of a choice for, for us. And, and this is kind of the first volley before we had Mike on. He set up a choice because because what Mike says is, look, one of the things we can do is obviously lower bag limits for turkeys in states where, because where, the thrust of this all is is that turkey populations in Tennessee and other places are taking a dive. Right. Uh, we're seeing less gobbling. We're seeing less turkeys. And, and in that article or Outdoor Life, my or uh, Cameron goes through this, mm-hmm. and all in a lot of this data and, and commentary is coming via Dr. Chamberlain, right? And so, what he's saying is, we kind of can make a choice 
do we choose to ban this tactic that is a potential problem with with no data really to back it up? It kind of be a, it's not impossible, but very difficult to back that up. Right. We ban this as a potential problem, and and possibly allow ourselves to keep our season length and our bag limits, or you know, would we uh, move our seasons back two weeks and take our bag limits from three to one, or however? Um, there's a bunch of Again, this is this is an incredibly broad and slippery slope that we're on here. Like this, this is the way we discharge wildlife policy and wildlife management in this country, as we've talked about in this last in the last story, is it dependent on data and science and forethought, um, and that's where Mike Chamberlain comes in. Mm-hmm. He basically came on my podcast and said, uh, "We don't have sufficient data for this." Um, Cameron has identified a potential problem. Mm-hmm. And beyond that potential problem lays a myriad of solutions that we are nowhere near to having settled science on or settled data on or settled hundred surveys on. And to take it from, you know, identifying a potential problem with, with some sound logic all the way to banning uh, is just not, not the way to go. Did you see that TikTok video of that very southern individual who had the skid steer behind him? Yeah, a forestry head cutter and saying that's the problem. Yeah. So here's what happens. Like, yeah, here's what happens. People paint narratives based on their biases or based on Mm -hmm. their personal perspective and experience. Mm -hmm. And you see this, man. This is a problem that needs a real solution. And and habitat, as you mentioned, habitat fragmentation. Um, you know, full out loss of habitat, predation, fire. yeah, fire, predation. I mean, go, you know, over harvest of hunters at some level may, may be contributing, of course. But this is a problem that doesn't have one solution because it's a problem that doesn't have, you know, one core issue at its heart. And each ecosystem, each state, each turkey population likely has different factors at play. Um, and then so, you layer in the ethos, right? Which is where you yeah. start. Yeah. The, the ethos of this purist saying this is not right. It's almost like the long range shooter, right? The long range yeah. shooter that says, I'm taking at 600. The guy who shoots at less than 300 saying, that is, That's and right. I'll use the word unethical, but it actually isn't. It's just a personal preference. Right. At the end of so, the day. Yeah. What, we're, what I haven't done yet, what I intend to do this week, um, is have Cornell ethicist Dr. James Tantillo come on. You know, so we're going to run a podcast that just runs this out, each interview back to back, no cutting, no editing, just boom, this is how it goes. And um, also be talking to T-Bone from Bone Collector about this, because then it gets into this idea of like, what is ethics? I kind of came up with the term, or I just used the term to couch it in my own head of gatekeeper ethics. And that it, like is applied to that traditional sort of purist, right? They learned a certain way. They like to see turkey hunting in a certain way. So they use gatekeeper ethics to try to apply, you know, to, to outside uh, instances or to, in this case, like factors that just don't line up. They use these gatekeeper ethics to try to keep it the way they want it to be. And you have to make broad leaps uh, in objective reality to, to do that sometimes. And I think going from like, hey, here's a potential problem. We can kill breeder gobblers with reaping more often than we would if it didn't exist, you have to take a large leap to get to banning it from there. Um, and I think the, the here, there's a lot of people online that are purists that love to rally cry around this 
they love to not think it through and just yell out that it's bad because they don't agree with it either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're kind of lost in that personal preference versus um, actual sound, you know, policy. And, and, and that's, that's where we are. So we're going to have uh, Dr. Tantillo come on and just talk about those things. Uh, he's worked with the Orion Hunters Institute and kind of covered this a ton as to what really is personal preference and what really is ethical. And can we ever draw a line there, a true line there? Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully provide that context. And, you know, I'll say this, the bone collector deal is like, we only got one lap around this earth. Let's all support hunters no matter what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And let's, you know, let's go out there and hunt within the legal means the way we want to hunt and celebrate each other. Uh, that itself is kind of a problematic statement. I agree with half of it. The second half around, we only have one lap on the sun. Well, what about the next generation? Do we not leave them with, you know, a resource that we need to protect? So um, you kind of have this modernistic new age idea of like, let's just hunt the way we want to hunt that I agree with. But also we have to, we're stewards of the resource. So we can't. Yeah, but I think, I think when you speak with Travis, Travis will say that, he certainly is a steward of the resource and he right. wants it to be there for, you know, Archer, his boy one yeah. day and, and potentially yeah. his grandkids. Um, and yeah. yeah, you know, we had, we had T-Bone's episode from Blood Origins and it was, it was celebrate. It was celebrate the, the, the legal harvest of that individual. Um, celebrate, and, and, you know, obviously in with some sort of, with some sort of responsibility built into that thing, right? That's what he talks about. And, uh, and I'm sure he will say that, yeah. um, you know, and again, it becomes so gray and I'm glad you're going to talk to, to that doctor because it becomes so gray in which, you know, T-Bone and, and, and Michael are probably saying more to the guy who has two days to deer hunt and he kills a spike and he's super proud of that spike yet he gets absolutely chastised because he didn't let it walk and grow and you know i I don't have it on here but i got sent an article today in outdoor life that shows that today this in 2021 was the biggest buck harvest that we've ever had period since like Oh gosh, I think like the 1990s, or I don't know. I'm I'm messing up the number, but and the 41% of the bucks that were harvested were three and a half year old and over because of quality deer management principles. And there again is a an ethos that people are now bringing to social media and personal preference to say you should have let that thing walk. That's right. Should have let it grow. Yeah, I've seen those ideas, and I'm sure you've seen this too. Like it some of these ideas in the hands of a well-meaning person are incredibly constructive. That same idea in the hands of somebody who isn't well-meaning, who, who is acting in bad faith, who is just starting to you know, stir conflict or trolling or whatever you want to call it, can be problematic. And I think this is probably one of those where in a well-meaning sense, yeah, man, we should be helping to each other understand what the right way to go about this is, but also supporting whatever folks want to do. Um, and like I said, again, I, I think Cameron has, support online from a lot of people that are purists who just frankly don't like this tactic. Um, And I asked him, I said, is it a safety thing? Because I can see the safety thing. I'm with you. It's unsafe to crawl behind a turkey fan in the turkey woods. 
uh, special but, is it, but again, is the data there? Yes, it's it's people are being shot in the face. Yeah. But are people getting shot in the back or people getting shot in the legs right. in terms of just normal turkey hunting? Yeah, I mean, you're just is left. Is just because we're seeing more because of yeah. this whole issue? Are we seeing, again, it's an education thing, right? People, it, it happens in the news all the time. All of a sudden you start seeing XYZ and you're like, oh, I never saw XYZ before. Doesn't mean that XYZ wasn't happening. Exactly. And I think no matter what with this kind of thing, you're going to be dealing with what I guess they call in legal sense like edge cases. You're going to deal with edge cases, straw men, things that, that are sensational online that everybody sees that go viral. And we have a choice to either apply that to the general or to use use it in the context in which it happened. And I, I certainly think objectively, to me, sitting against a tree with a decoy in front of you is safer, even if that's unsafe to some level, than crawling across the field with, with a fan. But sure. beyond that, beyond that, sure. it's, it's debatable. Um, so I would, I would just, I would say like, look, I can have, we can have the safety conversation. If there's a rash of deaths out there, there certainly have been some, but again, those are, are likely edge cases uh, to the mean of, you know, most folks are safe when they go outside and, and are, are responsible. And the thing that gets me as kind of incredibly hypocritical here in this case is that we would never, ever, ever, ever allow this within the second amendment community. Like I would never allow someone to, to roll out a bunch of videos of people using AR-15s like idiots and then use that as a case to try to ban AR-15s. Like I, it's just mm, something that we don't – it's something that we just would never allow. So I think it's also just kind of this cultural sense of what does the community accept? You know, The community of hunters accepts trail camera bans in Arizona and Utah because a lot of people were mad about trail cameras and they think it's interrupting – uh, people's hunting and there's conflict around trail cameras. So let's ban them. Well, there's conflict around reaping for sure. So let's ban it. Um, these ideas would never be tolerated within other communities that are adjacent to our, that we are a part of. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's a bit of a head scratcher in that way. Um, and I, like no, I said, it's interesting. That, it's yeah. interesting. Uh, you know, I certainly think that I agree with you. Banning of a tactic it's probably not the route forward. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I certainly am on the on the side of the data and the biology that says if your if your numbers are going down, if your turkey populations are indeed going down, which Mike Chamberlain says they are, okay, decrease your bag limits. Yeah. Take it from three to one. You know, it's going to take out a third of the turkeys, and you can kill your turkey however you want to kill that turkey. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't I, matter. Yeah. I try to keep my personal opinion out of this podcast because I really thought, like, I need to learn about this first. I need to kind mm -hmm. of understand it. But as I go through it, it's only kind of doubled down on what I thought before, which is, like, I disagree with this, the banning idea, on about 15 different levels. Mm -hmm. I mean, from a new hunter, we're communicating to new hunters that an effective, uh, the, an effective tactic of killing a turkey is not okay. If you're a brand new hunter, you want to understand like killing a turkey is a very hard thing to do. We're telling you now, you now have to be limited in the way that you can do it because we feel it's unethical or unfair or not fair to other hunters. You know, so that's that's one. The you know, and there's so many others, but you know, you could go down to the slippery slope argument. Okay, if we if we allow a small group of people to to oppose and ban. A method of take or a, a way to lure a turkey over 
what happens for those folks to come back and be like, you know what, we also don't like full strut decoys, ban those two. You know, we also don't like uh, TSS super shot because you can shoot, you know, tungsten super shot because so, you can shoot out to 70 yards, ban that too. Like what? Absolutely. This is the argument that Second Amendment purists, kind of like me, make all the time. It's like, dude, if you let them take one of these things, they'll just go and take it all. Because the turkey purist wants the turkey hunting to be their way, wants it to be pure in their eyes. And so just fanning is never going to be the, if you give them and embolden them in a way, in this way, they're never going to just stop it at that. Mm-hmm. It's never going to mm-hmm. happen. Never going to happen. So a lot, a lot of people are going to call me out here because I use an, I use efficiency and effectiveness in a way to sort of work through my brain thought pattern of whether or not something should be banned or whether or not it doesn't matter or they're not going to go after it. Right. So from a trail camera perspective, I've always been of the opinion that it makes you more efficient. Right, which is it's quasi cheating. Um, it doesn't mean that they're going to go after your long range rifle. It doesn't mean you're going to have to go for your scope or your range finders because those things make you more effective of a hunter, i.e., they make you more lethal. If you think about this scenario, it almost is both. Um, in that it makes it's a little cheating uh, because of the biology of the bird, um, and. It, it, you know, from an effective perspective, yeah, certainly you can shoot something more effectively at closer range, but we all know turkey and turkey loads, the closer they get, the more yeah. you know, diligent you have to be in terms of how you shoot them. But you get an opportunity, maybe two or three opportunities because of things within five yards of you. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it, it, this these things are never as simple as they seem. And I think someone like Cameron, um, and I enjoyed Cameron, talking with Cameron. He was like, dude, I... I I want to ban reaping, but I got buddies that love doing it. And I'll, when I'm up, I don't, when they're up, they do like he, he's not a heretic. He's not out there doing this for like any virtue signaling or any kind of just like self uh, aggrandizement. Like he's not doing that. I think he really believes in this, but I think the issue is, and quite often the issue is kind of these logical fallacies that, that come up or these blind spots in our own approach to things is his narrative began with, I hate this shit. Mm-hmm. I hate it. I hate mm-hmm. seeing it. I hate seeing it online. I hate seeing it in the woods. I'm, I'm, I've done it. I don't like it. I don't want other people to do it. It's cheating. That's his narrative that he went into this with. He didn't come into this with an objective, open mind. Um, so he immediately took Mike Chamberlain's words and turkey population data and put that all together in a package and kind of he went way too far. And so what's going to happen on my podcast is you'll hear him state his case. And then you'll hear me ask similar questions to Mike Chamberlain. And Mike Chamberlain basically says, no, Cameron doesn't. He's using my, you know, essentially using my data and my comments to back this thing up. And I don't agree with him. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's Do you it's think kind of a, we would be in this position if it wasn't so sensationalist on social media? No. Uh-uh. No, I think if you paint the picture here, you start with, it is, it is a effective tactic that's new. So the purist, the traditional is, is going to be against it probably just to, you know, in, in general. But then we get into an environment where we're seeing all this stuff on social media. And it is sometimes, I look at it and cringe, man, it's cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that accelerates this idea that we have to do something. That accelerates this idea that we have to act. Um, and when you walk into a, to a to wildlife biologist in a, like a management discussion, this, this colors you know, this colors your approach. And I think this, this is how Cameron got to banning right away. Um, 
or, or at least not right away, but at least he got there quicker than most folks. And definitely quicker than Dr. Mike Chamberlain. Um, mm-hmm. who's, who's still, he desires, he wants to figure this out. Mike says on the podcast, he wants to figure it out. He certainly wants to like do a study and he has some ideas for what he might do, but none of the studies have been done. None of the science is settled. There's no data. And, and especially in the reaping case, you would have to take every tag holder that filled their tag and ask them, did you reap? And most of them are going to lie anyway. Most are not going to tell you the truth anyway in that kind of situation. Well, that's what I was going to suggest. I think the solution here is find a badass scientist like Mike Chamberlain who knows how to create a nested block design experiment in which you increase your predation pressures or you increase, sorry, you, you increase your predation effort. You put fire back on the landscape. And the only factor that is different between the two landscapes and the nested design is one allows reaping, one doesn't. And I would be fascinated yeah. Yeah. to see the results of the turkey populations in those areas. Yeah, Maybe we should fundraise for a project like that, Ben O'Brien. He, hey, man, he, re- he rolled it out on our show. that's saying like, hey, man, this is what I kind of want to do. I, I would fundraise that because here's the deal. And I think Mike Did said he this. tell you how much he needed? He didn't say, <laughs> I can ask him, I'll text him, like, hey, man, what, what do you need here? What can we do for you? But I think like what he said, and this may have been off the air, so I want to kind of paraphrase it in a, in a, a polite way, but kind of like we need to squash this as turkey hunters. We got to stop arguing about this. I don't think this would have ever happened, one, without social media, and two, without mm-hmm. turkey population decline. Mm-hmm. Um, those two factors set this off. Um, and I think we... As, as hunters, because again, this is, this is a, a true slippery slope where we have to tell ourselves, we really have to understand when we go to banning, and I said this to Cameron, the burden of proof is on you. If you're going to push to ban something, if you're going to push to change what someone, like someone's freedom, the burden of proof is so onerously on you. It's right in your face that you, can, you have to come with data, science. Uh, you have to come with logic. You got to come with uh, anecdotal evidence and tangible evidence that you can show us. You have to come with all of it. You don't get to just say this, you know. And that's that's where I think this becomes incredibly important. It's like we, mm-hmm. as a community, got to go. If you want to ban something, if this is the speech, I, I don't want to shut you up, but I want to tell you that you better come with more than just your hunch. And you better come with more than just a potential problem. With a pretty, more than just your preference. Yeah, more than just your preference to you know masquerading as a solution, um, and that's and again here we are with the turkey population issue that when we're talking about reaping, we're not talking about forestry. We're talking not talking about hab, habitat fragmentation. We're not talking about uh, raccoons, and, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about reaping, and that is it's a problem that we're not that we're yeah. stuck on this uh, yeah. because it is sensational. So here we are. Well, Georgia may be the test ground uh, where Mike is because they just passed that uh, state law that allows you to do predator trapping year-round. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, who knows what their turkey season looks like. Um, if if the guys are in the woods right now doing it, uh, there may be a knock-on effect already in 2023, but certainly 2024 will be yeah. a, a time to look at Georgia. Yeah, I mean, I think – you know, Mike is in a position to do this again. It's going to take time, and it's it's really going to take folks being patient and understanding that you can't knee jerk ban things because that's harder to get back than it is to to, to wait 
and see what happens and to really allow guys like Mike to do the work. Certainly, I don't think that's in the discourse on Instagram. That <laughs> That's probably not – the patience just doesn't seem to be there. But I'll tell you honestly, and this is this is on me. I, you know, I, I do a turkey podcast. I think about turkeys all the time. It's one of my favorite things to do. I, I read turkey books, I think. Uh, I, I worship Colonel Tom Kelly. Uh, as a god and i made a fan with a ping pong paddle that i thought was really cool and in my head at the time like i'm gonna post this people ask me like how i build it and how cool it was and how much the 7.99 ping pong paddle turned into thing i shouldn't have i knew that there was some folks against fanning but i just didn't realize or i wasn't plugged into the conversation around how how much vitriol there were so that this this whole podcast that i'm doing is my way of solving for my own mistake this mm-hmm. is posting this without given any context to what it was or what I intended to do with it or to the fact that a lot of people think it's, it's a, a problem. So to me, it's like, man, the only thing I can do dust off the old journalism major and try to go at this in a way that will help people answer this question. And there may be, there may be a lot of people that have already decided and they probably won't listen and, and you know, that's okay. But hopefully hearing from Mike and Cameron and Dr. Tantillo and, and, you know, T-Bone, hopefully getting him in there and, and letting him talk through on his end will at least give people a, a healthy starting point to think through it. Well, awesome. Well, this will certainly be a teaser to that, uh, that um, laundry list of podcasts. When does the first one drop, Ben? Because this will drop next Monday. This will be Monday when you oh, Monday, people listening so, to this. Yeah, we're going to uh, launch uh, a podcast on AlphaGal, the syndrome – uh, the meat allergy that comes from the Lone Star tick bites. Uh, we've got a cool immunologist on and, and some people that have had that. So that's coming uh, the day after you hear this. And then the following Tuesday, we're probably just going to run this all as one podcast. Uh, it, oh, might really? be three, it might be four hours long. Sorry about that. Holy uh, shit. You'll have to listen to it in, <laughs> in bits. But I really do want to, as I thought about this, I thought about editing it, running it in a series and in parts. The conversation is so interconnected. Um, mm-hmm. it feels like that's my, what we might do. Um, but we'll see. I, I, I certainly may break it into parts or, or run it out in, in kind of truncated bits that, that play against each other. But, um, being able to talk to Cameron and have him use Mike's, uh, you know, data and, and speech and stuff to back up his point and then have Mike come on and be like, Hey, what do you think about this here? And having him Brilliant. state Brilliant. his case. Uh, was great, and then having Dr. Tantillo come on and give kind of broad context of how we might find ourselves. We're going to find ourselves here again with something else real soon, um, and how we might think about this and, and maybe not get ourselves in this situation next time as a community where we fly off the handle on social media and we end up in this in this position. Hundred percent. Well, dude, it's been amazing. I knew the conversation was going to be easy. Cody would have added a completely different element to this, but Tony. You think he'd be into reaping? What is it? Uh, Cody would be into reaping. I would say he would. He would try it for sure. He seems like a reaper. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Definitely. Um, We'll see what he says about it. But uh, happy birthday, Cody. Uh, We missed you today. And uh, on to the next one. But Ben, thank you so much. You're always welcome back. If there's a topic that you want to throw on the table and, and let three individuals scrap about it and Cody come at it from a completely pure non-scientific layman terms, then we're the people for you. Nah, man, I, as always do, I appreciate everything you do from, from this to, to your initiatives like the black bear one and, and everything in between. It's a pleasure to share the space with you. You're welcome, my man. See ya.
Bye, brother. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.